Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello, can I please speak with Barry Edelstein? Speaking. Barry, this is Paul, Paul Holdengraber, calling you from the quarantine tapes. I'm, I'm so delighted that you could take the time to take my call. Tell me, where do I find you at the present time? Uh, I'm in San Diego at home and, and delighted to be with you, Paul. I'm delighted as well. For our listeners, could you, could you tell them a little bit uh, what you do and who you are? Who is Barry Edelstein? I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. Well, let's see. I'm a, I'm a dad of two young kids who are, you know, trying to cope with the pandemic. That's the most important thing I am. But by day, I am the artistic director, technically the Erna Fincy Viterbi, artic, artistic director of the Old Globe in San Diego, which is one of the largest regional theaters in the United States. Uh, I think the third or fourth largest theater company outside of New York City in the United States. I understand that the tagline for whether it's an official or an unofficial tagline for the old globe is we believe that theater matters. Our goal is to make it matter to more people. And you've also been known to say that the globe is a public institution that sits on public land that is here to do public good, which... um, It was particularly interesting for me to read, Barry, because the Onassis Foundation doesn't call itself a philanthropic foundation, but a foundation for public benefit. So perhaps you could explain a little bit what what these taglines, as it were, mean to you. Um, You know, the theater is an extraordinarily powerful art form that creates community, that gathers people together who are strangers uh, and makes them into an audience, um, a a group that's experiencing the same thing at the same time. It gathers people who uh, are individuals and makes them into a collective. And it's an extremely powerful force for bridging gaps, for creating empathy, for um, illuminating to each other, the subjectivities of our own existence. And um, an institution that makes theater has to find ways to bring that power of theater to the largest possible community. You know, we're a 501c3, a company incorporated to provide a public benefit. And so we have to take this magical thing that happens in our auditoria. We have three theaters in the middle of Balboa Park in San Diego. And we have to say that it's not just for folks who can afford a ticket, who have, um, I don't know, a a history of coming to the theater or have been brought up to feel comfortable in the theater, but but it's for everybody. It's a piece of the civic furniture of our city. Mm. And in that sense, in that sense, it's a public good. So the globe does all kinds of things. I mean, in a, in a normal year, which we're not in right now, but in a normal year, we, we produce 16 productions on our three stages. We have an extremely sophisticated program that we call arts engagement, which is 
making participatory theater making programming out in neighborhoods around San Diego. So we're in homeless shelters, senior centers, refugee centers, active duty military, libraries. Uh, we have one of the country's most sophisticated programs of theater in penitentiaries and jails. Mm. And so it's about, it's about enfranchising populations that don't have accessibility to this art form that you and I, for example, take for granted. And then we do all sorts of other things. We have artist training, a really good actor training program at the University of San Diego. We do sort of public education stuff, lifelong learning, like the Shakespeare programs that you're seeing, you've seen me do on, on the internet. They're really wonderful and they engage this moment, this desperate moment, in a way that is filled with enthusiasm and, and, and keeps the flame alive. But let me not interrupt you. No, that's okay. So, you know, when you take all these different things together and you say, okay, what's a theater? And you close your eyes and you say, it's a place where you go to see a production of My Fair Lady. But that's only one part of it. it. It's also a place that is about civic engagement, about citizenship, about learning, about emotional intelligence, about empathy, about mutual understanding. And so at The Globe, we have put all that under the umbrella of this idea of theater as a public good. You know, we see ourselves like a library system or a healthcare system or a utility right? It's something that serves the entire city and that everybody who lives in San Diego should see as their common property. But now, now, Barry, what, what does that tagline mean, given our present predicament, our current circumstances? Well, that's the question that I wrestle with every day. You know, I, I, I wear two hats. I'm, a, I'm an artist in the theater. I'm a stage director. And, you know, if all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players, I don't know what you do when the auditorium is locked, right? That, that thing that we do depends on a crowd gathering. And the authorities have said no gatherings. And of course, we wouldn't dare want to do that because we don't want to help the virus do its terrible work. So what's a theater if you cannot gather an audience? And, and the, this moment has afforded us the opportunity to look at these digital platforms. So we're, we're turning to Facebook Live and to YouTube and to Instagram and to audio recordings of plays and to Zoom and investigating these art forms and asking, can we do something that's live? Can we do something that gathers a community, just not physically? And can we get writers working and artists working? Is, is there a way to get scenic designers and costume designers working? And, and that's our daily question. And the artistic staff of the globe and, and the arts engagement staff of the globe, and also me as an individual artist, all wrestling with what should this form be in this moment, right? So that's, that's my artist hat. My artistic director hat has an institution. At the beginning of this pandemic, the Globe furloughed 122 people and sent 22 artists home. It's I know. Devastating. Mm. Uh, you know, just the worst day of my 30-year career in the theater was that day that we shut down on March 12th. So it, it's an institution that's really an employer. We are we are part of the community. We're a small business that creates jobs and. Those jobs allow people to raise their families and, and, and pay their mortgages and contribute to their own communities and neighborhoods. And so the institutional part of my life, what is it to be the CEO of an arts institution whose practice has been shut down? And it's just exquisitely challenging. So what is it? Um, uh, on the one hand, you, you have to do a lot of fundraising. And on the other hand, I imagine, Barry, you, you're thinking to yourself, 
will all of those people I net I needed to let go over a hundred people as you said will will those jobs still exist after the pandemic whenever that might be that's one of the things that keeps me up at night Paul you know because um, already you know with our box office shut down the revenue plunge that the globe has experienced has been profound philanthropists in San Diego have been stalwart and philanthropy will not hit our goals for this year, but it's going to come awfully close. And God bless the generous people of San Diego County who love this institution that's been here for 85 years and they don't want to see it go away. Um, And it it burned down in the seventies and the community rallied around to rebuild it. It was shut down during the second world war and it survived. So we all kind of trust that the globe's not going to go away, but it's certainly going to be diminished. And we've had people, you know, leave town because San Diego is an expensive place to live. And so furloughed from their uh, artisanal job at the Globe, doing whatever, making wigs or putting the color into lighting instruments or building scenery. If that work's not there, San Diego is a formidably difficult place to make a to make a life. And we've had some people leave. We've had some other people, you know, go back to school. We've had other people just say, that's it. I can't do it anymore. And, you know, the, the theater remains, even in our modern technological world, it's kind of a medieval organization. You know, mm. you have you have craftspeople at the top of their game who have um, apprentices who, who grow over years to learn these really specific skills about how you cut a garment or, you know, how you how you do the craft work on, on the sleeve of a period dress or something like that. And if that knowledge disappears because this pandemic goes on for a year or, God forbid, 18 months, then I think the field is going to experience a massive drain of artisanal skill, and, and that just chills me. Chills me even imagining what the theater might look like. Um, what it might look like when when we're comfortable being with each other in public, and I'm I'm wondering what do you think Joe Papp is whispering in your ears? I you know in my office at the theater I have a picture of Joe Papp uh, hanging on the wall, and I, I look at it all day every day, thinking what would he do in this situation? I suppose I should run in there and and, and bring it home. I think. I think Pap, you know, Joe Pap, of course, the founder of the Public Theater New York Shakespeare Festival in New York and one of the greatest ever figures in the American theater. His his contribution was kind of the democratization of theater as a cultural artifact. He believed that the theater belonged to everybody. He called his theater public uh, on the analogy of a public library. It should be a place where you can come in and get theater uh, cheap or for free in the same way that you walk into a library and take the great books for free. And his practice in every area of the way that he did theater was about sharing this common culture with everybody, making a theater that in in that case really looked like New York. That's the beginning of my career was there. And I had the great good fortune of working for Joe Papp in the last few years of his life. So I certainly think he would remind me that the work is to make the culture of theater belong to everybody in the most equitable possible way, truly resonating now. And then, of course, you know, one of my favorite things about him is Joe Papp believed that there was no problem in human society that couldn't be made a little better by having some Shakespeare thrown at it. Yes. And uh, he was he was a he was a, a serial Shakespeare quoter. He, <laughs> he quoted Shakespeare all the time and he always had a story about Shakespeare and a twinkle would show up in his eye. And I, I, I so uh, value those those few fleeting years that I, I, I had 
working in that operation. And I carry the flame of that with me because that's what I'm trying to do. Throw some Shakespeare at this thing. And, so you, and maybe you, it'll get a little better. You, you suffer from the same disease. You, you can't stop quoting Shakespeare. And, and, and Shakespeare, in, in a sense, is a, a mentor and a constant companion for you. How is he helping you, do you think, navigate, or is he helping you, I should rather say, navigate uh, this pandemic? And Is any Shakespeare for you present at this moment that helps you along? Oh, my God, so much Shakespeare. You know, my favorite line of Shakespeare is from As You Like It, much virtue in if. If is a moral good that we're obliged to imagine. And so we're asking ourselves, well, what if the theater, when it reopens, is more accessible to more people? What if the theater, when it reopens, is more equitable and more just? Uh, what if the theater can respond to, you know, this racial upheaval that's going on in our country, this reckoning after 400 years in a beautiful way? So much virtue and if is, is, is with me all the time, because what happens, Paul, is that, you know, Shakespeare provides words for these feelings that I'm having, these sort of barely formed, strange, like pebbles in my shoe, you know, that, that, that irritate me when I walk. And you, what is that? You, What's that I'm, thing? I'm sorry to interrupt you one moment. Pebble in your shoe, do you know, the origin of that is the word scruple. Scruple in old, old Greek times literally meant a pebble in your shoe that made you uncomfortable. I did not thank you for that. Okay. I knew I'd learned something from you well, today. Like, Paul, like, like, you. Likewise. Anyway, I interrupted you very but, rudely. No, no, no. So, so not at all. So, um, you know, I find myself feeling these things about this moment, and, and, and Shakespeare provides words. Uh, I find myself going, uh, asking, is the theater going to make it? And Shakespeare's theater company was shut down by the authorities because of plague uh, four times, perhaps five times during his professional career. And every single time it reopened, and not just reopened, but thrived. You know, Shakespeare tells us about the continuity of the human existence, We, we, we hear something in Shakespeare about the night sky being beautiful, and then it gets dark, and we look up, and we say, that's right, it is beautiful. It was beautiful 400 years ago, and it's beautiful now. It's beautiful so there, there, and there's dark. Something, yeah, it's beautiful and, and dark at the same time. It's beautiful and dark, but there are these bright sparkles of light that tell us, you know, whatever about the moon. But, but there, are these, there are these pieces of Shakespeare that have come roaring into my existence as I have gone through this pandemic at, at, at different stages, you know? And I think to myself, yeah, I, 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 you know, I'll give you an example. I, I early on in this thing, when we shut the theater down, I thought, what chance is the theater going to have against a once in a century global pandemic? There is just such a violence and such a force of, of malevolence to this thing that's sweeping the world. And I remembered this line in, in Sonnet 65, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea whose action is no stronger than a flower. The idea that the, act, the power of beauty is weak, it's no stronger than a flower, but there's this rage coming at it. And I said, that's exactly how I feel. This is what's bothering me. This is why I can't sleep, because I'm aware that the theater is a fragile thing, and this monstrous force is coming for it. And that's Sonnet 65. So, you know, I spent the day just sitting with Sonnet 65. But and as, it but, made me feel better. But as you said, um, you know, if Shakespeare managed four pandemics, the bubonic plague, so can we. 
I mean, it's in, in other words, these times are not unprecedented. That's such a huge point, Paul, because I hear the word unprecedented thrown around so casually. Perhaps the confluence of all the things we're dealing with are unprecedented. But the pandemic is not. There have been pandemics before in, in, in you know, in Renaissance Europe. Uh, in There were coronaviruses in China. I remember one in the 90s when they shut the movie theaters down in Hong Kong. I, I think it's reckless to talk about this moment as unprecedented. And not only reckless, I think it's just ill-advised because it denies us a chance to learn from how our society has endured this before. Right. And, 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 and Shakespeare and did. You, you gave a, a beautiful address uh, at the Francis Parker School where you, you, you clearly speak about that. You clearly speak about the idea that though there were all these pandemics, life, as you said, roared on and you finish by saying the Shakespeare we revere today in the form of 36 masterpieces only exists because of an entrepreneurial response to a pandemic. That's history. That's fact. There's solace to be found there. Pandemics end, upheaval brings change, something new is born, something fuller, better, more enduring. The past tells us so. It behooves us to heed it. And so I'm wondering, how are you transforming what you do on a daily basis when the old globe is open at this moment? How are you managing? What are you doing to remain engaged with the public, to have kind of a virtual tactile relationship with them? Well, we, we have generated hours and hours and hours of online material that is, is at our website at the Old Globe where, where we've really taken so many of our programs that we run in real life and, and rendered them in virtual form. And it's, it's one of the successes of this period. We'll, we'll do this stuff after we're back. That's interesting More. to me. That's interesting to me, really. And I read this about you. It's as if this moment has provided you a possibility of doing all this online uh, uh, performances. Of, uh, and I mentioned that I saw one which I thought was ex really very well done. I mean, truly well done. Very, very engaging. What, what strikes me is that when the world goes back to what passes for normal, when we can sit comfortably next to somebody else and not feel that we are putting our life and their life in jeopardy, the old globe under your leadership will continue to have a very strong online presence. Why? I, I think we must. I mean, first of all, we can just reach so many more people. And if the commitment is to make theater matter to more people, that's one way to do it. I'm under no illusion that my audience, which like the audience of nonprofit performing arts in many fields, in, in, in orchestral music, in opera, is frankly a little older, uh, right? I mean, this is the most vulnerable population. I don't believe we're going to see the number of people coming back at least in the in the in the early days of, of normalcy returning, as we're waiting for this this vaccine that we're all praying for to sort of make its way through the population, and so folks that are staying home need to be reached. Also, you know, theater tickets are expensive, and we're constantly looking for ways to become more accessible to, to folks who can't necessarily afford or, or don't wish to afford the, the expensive tickets in our theaters. And so this is one way to do it. One of the most amazing things the Globe is doing is, you know, the, the work that we're doing in prisons was shut down immediately. But the California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation said, we have a closed circuit television system mm. that operates inside the penitentiaries. Can you make some stuff for that? And so we've taken our 
prison Shakespeare programs called Reflecting Shakespeare. Um, and we've put it on the closed circuit TV in the in the prison system in California. It's reaching so many more people than we could ever reach by doing it in person. I, I'm getting I'm getting emails when I do my Shakespeare stuff from literally from around the world. The, the theater is a local phenomenon. You got to go to that auditorium where there are only 600 seats and, and, and watch the play. But now I'm, I'm getting emails from New Zealand, from, from England, from Jerusalem that are seeing this work. It's sort of a stunning revelation that the theater can transform itself in that way. As time passes and as we all await a vaccine, how can we uh, create content online that is aesthetically pleasing, let us say? Well, uh, artists will make art, Paul. You know, I, I'm not going to claim that the globe has the has the magic recipe here. But you know, when you when you look at what folks are doing around the world, there's some astonishing stuff going on. You know, th this rebirth of radio drama from you know uh, whatever 80, 75, 80 years ago. Suddenly, there's this amazing bounty of radio drama going on. People who are writing plays for Zoom, exploiting the capabilities of that, and then figuring out ways for, you know, to, to get set designers and lighting designers involved in rendering green screen effects and stuff like that for Zoom. People who are figuring out ways to do theater for an individual, you know, or for people in a car. There was a wonderful thing I, I read about uh, up in the Berkshires where actors rehearsed scenes and they were socially distant and they were stationed in places. And then you got a map and you got in your car and you drove to station A and then the little scene played out. Then you drove to the next one and the little scene played out. I mean, the invention is amazing. And as you know, nothing inspires an artist like limitation. Right. So when you, when you say to someone, okay, car, um, three people, uh, $10 go. And astonishing creativity follows in a way that limitless time and a million dollars would never create. So I, I think that there's going to be this kind of strange new hybrid form that's created that's a little like theater, but not entirely like theater. That's a little like video art, but not entirely like video art. And there are going to be practitioners who become extraordinary at it. And this form will endure. And then we'll go back to putting Shakespeare on at the Globe and, and musicals yeah. at the Globe, and, and there'll be that too. And w I mean, will we go back to you know theater as its earliest incarnation? You know, as as, as you wrote uh, early on in the pandemic, the theater is a social space, a social place. Gathering people together is the reason for being. That is what the ancient Greeks understood when they invented the form in the first place. We will go back to. To, to theater as we, as we have lived it for centuries, you believe? I do believe that because we need it. We need this place to come where we can together understand the gigantic questions that are facing us as a people. And, and you know, one of the things that I, uh, that when I know things will be normal is when you sit in the theater and somebody coughs and instead of turning around and scowling, You go, oh, thank God, somebody has coughed and it's okay. Right. You know, I mean, I literally cannot wait for that day when I'm in the old globe sitting cheek by jowl with 600 people and some dude two rows behind me lets out a big hacking cough. I will be the happiest man in the world when that happens. What Shakespeare comes to your mind now? You mentioned Sonnet 65. What is it that, that really tickles you now and that you feel in some way maybe Shakespeare helps us, is a roadmap perhaps to get us out of this mess? 
Oh my God, there's so much. Yeah, Oh, She's Warm is uh, the climax of the winter's tale. And it's, it's you know, the joke I always make is I, I climb into my little daughter's bed in the morning and hug her and say, oh, she's warm. And she says, Daddy, will you quit quoting Shakespeare? Because, um, you know. No, no chance. No, 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 not going to happen. Well, you know, so many, I mean, there's, I've got a million lines floating around in my head, you know, as, as, as you always have, Paul. I, uh, I, I, I suffer from quotomania in, indeed. But tell me what, at this moment, in, in Barry Edelstein's mind, what comes there's, right now? Sure, right now, there's a line in Measure for Measure. The miserable have no other medicine but only hope. How do you understand that? Well, you know, we're all looking for a vaccine, right? We're, 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 we're miserable and we're looking for medicine. But there's a medicine that's right in front of us, easily available, called hope. I look now to Shakespeare for, for optimism, right? For some promise that things are going to get better. And, and you know, he never disappoints. Um, you know, there's another one, the, another sonnet that is, like, not a famous one, but beautiful, uh, that suddenly becomes about social distancing and about, and about sheltering at home. He's got the sonnet 44, which is about what it's like to be absent from someone and how we can imagine that we're with someone because the power of thought allows us to cover great distances. But sadly, we have to reckon with the fact that we're not composed of thought and, and we are flesh and blood and we're separate from each other. So he's just this constant companion that, that makes me feel a little better in this grim time. In this grim time, there's also been the Black Lives Matter protests. Do you think they will impact uh, the theater? You mentioned to me this initiative called We See You White American Theater. And I'm wondering if you could say something about that and maybe how in your organization that may, may have an impact or not. Well, it, it's going to have a massive impact, and it, it, it's, a, it's a major preoccupation, not only at the Old Globe, but at institutional theater companies nationwide, and, and of course, in every other sector, right? Hospitals are dealing with it, and, and universities, and everywhere, people are finally coming face-to-face -face with this 400-year legacy of systemic racism, and, and we now have this vocabulary around anti-racism and dismantling structures of exclusion and, and oppression. And that's what the theater is doing. Uh, uh, we see white American theater as a group of activists, mostly uh, black, but also people of color. BIPOC is, is of course, the acronym. And um, they got together and they uh, talked about their, their own lived experience as people of color in these predominantly white institutions. And it's not a pretty picture. And so the movement issued um, a couple of months ago a 30-page series of demands that, that called for change in these institutions. And I think every institution in America and certainly the globe is, is working on how we're going to respond to this because it's extremely painful to understand that our friends and our colleagues and these brilliant artists that have been in our theaters have felt unwelcome and not and worse, you know, excluded and, and injured. And so we're, we're looking to, to acknowledge that, to, to atone for it, you know, Uh, and, and we're trying to figure out a way that we can change our operation moving forward. The Globe's deeply involved in this. We, we, we have been uh, talking to artists all over the country. We've been doing deep work inside of our own staff. We convened a committee of black theater makers and philanthropists and community organizers here in San Diego and talked to them and very simply said, Tell us, please, about your experiences at the Old Globe, going back however long you want and however painful they are, 
and please help us figure out how we can address them. And it's been a remarkable series of conversations uh, in which we've heard some difficult things and in which we've found some ways that maybe we can try and address them. And, and I think the, the, the true hope I have is that when we do reopen, these theaters are going to be more inclusive and more equitable and I hope more gracious. And that's that's got to be our goal. Barry, um, in closing, very sadly, um, the wonderful and so talented actress Megan Ketch had a question for you, um, oh. which was, what play are you dreaming of producing when there's a vaccine and isolation is lifted. Well, Megan is so incredibly talented and a, a colleague and a friend and somebody who's just, uh, you know, certainly a great Shakespearean, and it, it's a great question. Um, uh, uh, my, my favorite Shakespeare play is The Winter's Tale, mm. and Shakespeare's last four plays that critics variously call the romances or the tragic comedies are these are these things that sort of blend genre this invention that Shakespeare made of a new genre that's kind of tragedy and kind of comedy um, and all of them feature restoration feature some kind of sense of redemption that allows the the tragic errors of the past to yield to an optimistic future. And at the end of The Winter's Tale, this king, his name is Leontes, has falsely accused his wife of adultery that she didn't commit. She ends up dying. His son ends up dying. His, his kingdom is plunged into a kind of stasis for 16 years. And at the end of the play, through some miracle, he gets a second chance. And the dead people stay dead. It's not glib. The, what's been lost is lost forever. But there is a possibility of forward movement. And the great line in that play and the great moment in the play when he gets that chance is when this woman, Paulina, who's one of his courtiers, says to him, it is required you do awake your faith. And that idea is kind of the big idea of Shakespeare's entire canon. We have to believe in something that's bigger than ourselves. And uh, that's the play I hope I'll get a chance to do. And I hope the American theater produces all four of those romances because they offer us a path forward that does not ask us to ignore what we've lost, but that allows us to integrate what we've lost into a sense of what might come if only we have the faith to dare pursue it. Barry, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. And when that moment comes, I will make the trip from Los Angeles to San Diego, which is hardly far, and uh, come and see it. I, I can't wait to be in the audience and to hear somebody cough. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so Thank you, much, Paul. Barry. Take good a, care. Thank you. It's been a, been pleasure, a pleasure speaking with you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com slash support.